So since they no longer believe in a hope narrative, they have to be made to vote on the basis of fear. And at this point in our political system, the number of fringe voters, people who might vote for one party or not at all, but are not going to vote for the other party, is much larger than the number of swing voters who will switch which party they vote for based on strength of argument. So it's no longer strategic. It no longer makes sense if you're a political strategist to try to convince someone to flip parties. It is now about activating the fringe voter who otherwise won't vote. And the way you activate the fringe voter, it used to be that you'd promise crazy things to the fringe voter that you had no intention of delivering upon just to get the fringe voter to show up. Now the fringe voter is wise to that. So you tell the fringe voter, if you don't show up, the other side will get their crazy things. In point of fact, nobody will get anything and the center will just keep rolling on. And part of the function of my book is to try to bring people out of this fear space, not because I think that there's a hope space that makes sense at this particular juncture, but because I think if we get out of this fear space and look at this system as something that's totally defective and not at all capable of delivering anything, then that invites us to get more profoundly critical in a more constructive way than we have been to this point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Artifact number 42. Today, I am joined by Benjamin Studebaker. He's actually someone that I've been following for a couple of years. I don't uh, normally tell people this is a contemporary writer that I read and I'm interested in, but Benjamin Studebaker is one of my favorite political commentators. He has a website, BenjaminStudebaker.com, that goes back, like uh, I think at this point, uh, maybe 10 years or perhaps even a little bit longer. And he recently wrote a book. Normally, I would pick it up, but I have it on my Kindle titled The Chronic Crisis of American Democracy with the a subtitle, The Way is Shut. It kind of discusses perhaps some of the things that I've discussed on this channel, the idea of, for instance, well, what is really democracy? How do we define it? Uh, how the left and the right uses uh, so-called threats to democracy as a means of defanging any uh, true populist movements. Right. We've had kind of like sub and, and proxy populist movements and pseudo populist movements, but uh, uh, both the left and the right are in this kind of quest to fang it whenever it emerges. All right. So before we get to the meat of the book, I actually want to start with the dedication. You have a dedication that says for my parents and for all who labor so that others may write. And I thought that was an interesting way to kind of begin things. Uh, in my uh, Steven Pinker show from a couple years back, I was tackling his book, Enlightenment Now. One thing that really bothered me about Pinker is how he just totally like offloaded all responsibility for uh, uh, progress to, I guess it's kind of like abstract notion of progress itself without actually dealing with the bodies that you're standing upon. You know, for Pinker to write his books, right, he has to, you know, he has to use phones and gadgets that are built essentially with slave labor, right? He has to deal with the fact that his wages are going to be much higher than anybody else's. And in his critiques of Nietzsche, um, 
they're interesting to read because Nietzsche would very much try to square with those kinds of like realities. And he just totally sweeps that under the rug and then also discounts Nietzsche in the process. Uh, what made you want to do specifically this kind of uh, dedication? Well, all time for thinking is created by other people not having time for thinking. In my case, my parents didn't have time to sit around and think they were out working all the time to pay for me to go to school. And that is the only reason I can do theory, that they did that. So I wanted to do a dedication to them, but I also wanted something that was public facing, something that recognized the degree to which this is an attempt to make a public intervention. And so I, I said, well, what is it about my parents that is generalizable? and relevant for this book. And I think it really is that they labored so that I could write. And this book really is written for those who labor so that other people may write. That's not to say that that's necessarily the constituency that's most likely to pick up or read this kind of book, but that is who I had in mind, who I cared about when I wrote it. Yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, I have a similar experience. Uh, my mother went from sort of like wanting me to do like very lucrative work to near the end of her life, essentially saying, uh, no, you have to actually do something important, right? You have to keep writing books. It doesn't matter if there's an audience or not. You just have to keep going. So by the time that we get to uh, the opening of the uh, of the book, I believe the first chapter is titled The uh, Unsolvable Problem. Uh, what is the unsolvable problem? Maybe not even just the context of just America, but perhaps it applies to the whole world right now uh, over the last five decades or so. Yeah. So as capital gets more mobile, as it becomes easier for very wealthy people and firms to move money and jobs from place to place, their power increases at the expense of the power of people who are less mobile and whose money is less mobile. States are territorial. They are very, very immobile. So as the ability of people to move money around the world increases, they can say to states, well, why should I move money to where you are? I could move money somewhere else just as easily. What are you going to give me in exchange for me parking my money there? And what they tend to get are lower tax rates, weaker labor laws, weakened labor unions, lower wages, weaker regulations. States are in this competitive game with each other to attract money and jobs. And this game exercises a constant gravitational pull on their policy. And so what is unsolvable about this is that the more you make capital mobile, the stronger these competitive incentives become. It gets harder and harder to defy the incentives. And as capital becomes more mobile, you get all these supply chains. And these supply chains become very costly to disrupt. So in a situation where there is very little trade, like immediately after World War II, there's an opportunity for states to go, okay, we're going to allow trade to happen. We're going to allow you to move money around, but here are the rules. Since we're turning back on the taps, we're deciding what the rules will be for our turning back on the taps. Once the taps are running and people are accustomed to buying all sorts of stuff at very low prices, if you disrupt that and generate inflation or generate shortages of things, that will make people very unhappy and that will cause them to vote against you in elections. 
So democratic governments find that if they try to disrupt this system for the purposes of redistributing wealth or rearranging the distribution of wealth and power, that uh, they will pay an enormous near-term cost for that. At the same time, if they try to club together with other states and negotiate and come together to create another system, the issue is that it's very easy for some states to defect and to try to take advantage of any block of states that try to set minimum standards. So even in the case of something like the European Union or the United States, where you have a very large block, it's still the case that there are many, many states that are outside of those blocks that play all kinds of games with their tax rates. And even within these blocks, within the range of possible policies. You'll see, say, a state like Texas that will run its tax rates down as low as it can to siphon jobs and money from California. Or you'll see in Europe, a state like Germany that will use flexible labor markets to siphon jobs and investment from a state like, say, France. And then when things are not going so well in California or things are not going so well in France or Italy, you'll see Texas or Germany go, ah, this is because you don't have a competitive system. You need to change your system and get more competitive and become more like us. So in the book, I, I am exploring how do you actually make a world that's better for the people who labor so that other people can write when there is this enormous amount of capital mobility? Can you make new rules that govern it? Can you break it up in some way so that it can be the system can be redesigned? It's very, very difficult to do, in part because the more mobile capital becomes, the more powerful the oligarchs and corporations become that benefit from capital mobility. And even in periods when the distribution of power was a lot less slanted toward them than it is now, say the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the tendency was for oligarchs and corporations to succeed in pressing states to lower trade barriers and eventually to lower tax rates. And even in the 70s, when, say, the labor unions had you know, double the density in the United States that they now have, ultimately, those unions were not really able to outcompete oligarchs and corporations. And as the decades have worn on, the situation has only gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. Is there a specific uh, period that you would kind of like situate, I guess, the, the beginnings of this capital uh, mobility? Because, I mean, it, it, he doesn't normally get talked about in these ways, but uh, it does seem to me at this point that FDR uh, was kind of like in some ways the first like real major neoliberal that at least America had, right? Um, part, part of uh, how he was able to win the 1936 election was – uh, he basically got a huge uh, voting block in, in Black America who essentially said, look, we don't trust FDR to not be racist, uh, but we don't trust anybody else to not be racist. And yet he's actually offering something substantive to us that's going to improve our lives. Uh, so he was able to offer a lot, right? Dangle this carrot, essentially. At the same time, what he also uh, did was he essentially had an alliance with the uh, business people that uh, in exchange for this, in exchange for high tax rates and stuff like that, uh, they now would have you know access to markets outside of America, right? This is when uh, uh, really capital started kind of going uh, abroad, and this, of course, yes, it did intensify with the decade. So, like, is is there like any other period, or like w w when did this all happen, and w what are the trends that occurred within? Yeah, so if you were to go back to 
the Gilded Age in the 1890s, there was a substantial amount of capital mobility, not nearly as much as now, but a substantial amount by historical standards. That mobility was very heavily disrupted by the First World War. And the First World War also destroyed an enormous amount of old money, an enormous amount of wealth that was held by the old European families. And that disruption in mobility and that breakup of those centers of wealth and power that had previously existed uh, created opportunities for new kinds of approaches. In the 20s, there was an effort to put this thing back together, but the system was never really fully put back together in the 20s. And then when the depression hits, it completely breaks apart. You get a bunch of tariffs all over the place, lots of states tariffing each other. You get a very, very limited mobility of capital. States start rearming and approaching international politics in a militarily competitive fashion again. So much less trade in the 30s. And what that does is it creates an opportunity for policy leaders to try different and distinctive approaches from one another. And so you get this environment in the 30s where you have, say, the Nazi state that is trying its set of economic policies, the Soviet state, which is trying its set of economic policies, the United States under FDR trying its set, and these being very distinct and different ways of trying to manage the economy from the point of view of the state. All of that is possible because if you don't like what's going on in the United States, you can't easily take your money to the Soviet Union or take your money to Nazi Germany or even take your money to the UK during this time or to France. It becomes increasingly difficult to move money, uh, even within the states that we might think of today as the friendly states, the states that you'd expect there to be a lot of intercourse with. In the 30s, there just wasn't very much. And then in the 40s, when the war starts, again, there's enormous disruption and rationing and the state actively planning supplies of things. So as you come out of that, there's an opportunity to then redesign the system of international trade at the Bretton Woods Conference. And initially, the plan is to have something that limits substantially the amount of trade that takes place so that governments still have a lot of autonomy and can pursue different kinds of policy options. And throughout the Cold War, for instance, uh, the amount of trade that goes on between the Soviet sphere and the Western sphere is almost nothing. Uh, and Soviet trade as a percentage of GDP is negligible. Within the Western sphere, there's a gradual increase in the amount of trade with more and more post-colonial states getting admitted to the trade zone. So the trade zone getting bigger and then the tariffs getting negotiated down repeatedly over and over and over again at these different rounds of trade talks. And as these uh, tariffs get lowered and you integrate more states that are poorer, that have lower wage environments uh, into the trade block, that creates this competitive incentive that slowly undercuts and undermines the position of the labor union based Western worker. And this uh, happens slowly over the course of the 50s, 60s and 70s. And in the 70s, it comes to a head. You start to get these inflationary spikes that are driven in large part by foreign policy crises, exogenous events, things like the oil shocks, uh, the OPEC embargo, the fall of the Iranian regime, the fall of the Shah. Uh, these things kick up uh, prices. And when they kick up prices, the oligarchs and corporations go, see, the problem with all of this is that the workers are getting paid too much money. They have too much leverage. 
And so we need to really undermine their ability to negotiate for higher wages, because otherwise this inflation will just keep going and keep going and keep going. And they're ultimately able to prevail in part through a little bit of economic luck. You know, for instance, it's lucky for the right that the Iranian revolution happens right in 1979, right before an election year in 1980. And that is going to create panic in the Carter administration, which is going to cause the Carter administration to move to the right, which is going. Uh, so J Jimmy Carter, for instance, appoints Paul Volcker chairman of the Federal Reserve. Volcker starts kicking up the interest rates in an election year. That, of course, means that Carter is going to lose badly to Reagan. And then Reagan will follow this policy further. Similarly, in the UK, Margaret Thatcher gets in in 79 during this uh, second inflationary spike associated with the fall of Iran. The fall of the Shah had, I think, very substantial effects in those countries. In some other Western countries, the process happens slower because parliamentary systems with proportional representation make it difficult for one party to establish a majority and pass sweeping reforms. So in a lot of European countries, the reforms are delayed or happen more slowly over the course of the 80s and 90s. And in many of these countries, the process is still ongoing. We're hearing about the process ongoing in France as we as we speak. So it's uh, it happens at different rates at, in different places. But the more Britain and the United States go in this direction, the more that creates incentives that push other states that way. So Germany follows. And then once Germany follows, now that's a big pull on other states within the European Union. And the euro crisis is very much a crisis about whether these states are going to follow Germany or continue to be disadvantaged in the trading relationship with Germany. Uh, what, what is to be done about Germany? Do you kick it out of the European Union? Do you yourself withdraw from the European Union? What do you do if you're a peripheral state like Spain, Portugal, Italy, Greece, uh, or France, depending on how you choose to view France? That question was never really positively answered. All of the European, Southern European states that found themselves in that situation uh, became uh, very concerned that if they did try to do anything to meaningfully change the structure, that the near-term economic costs of doing that, say dumping the euro or leaving the European Union, would be enormous. And the UK, which tried leaving the European Union, even with its own currency already established, has seen that there's substantial economic cost to that and substantial fall in living standards as a consequence of exiting the trade block. And that's the case in the UK, even though the Brexit deal still preserves relatively low tariff trade between the UK and the European Union. Um, and that happens in part because companies, when they look at this situation, go, why would I want to base in the UK when I could base in an EU member state and not have to deal with all the paperwork? If I want to work in English, why don't I go to Ireland, which also has a more favorable tax environment? The UK can adopt tax rates that are similar to Ireland's tax rates. But even if it does that, it doesn't have the easy access without all the paperwork that Ireland has. So it's in a losing game of trying to attract jobs and investment that uh, otherwise will start to go to Dublin or they'll start to go to Frankfurt. And this is this is the game increasingly. And it's just getting played at more and more intense levels the further we go, because policymakers are finding that this drag on them is bigger really than anything else, uh, than anything that we talk about, than any of the exogenous events that have happened in recent years. It's stronger than, um, it's not 
something that you can easily displace with COVID or the war in Ukraine. It takes a really, really large economic shock to actually disrupt capital mobility once it gets going. If you look at trade volumes with China, we talk all, all the time about a trade war between the United States and China, but the trade volume is still about as big as it was five years ago. It has not significantly reduced in size. Insofar as the United States does cut trade with China, it tends to just trade more with other poor states that have low wages and uh, low tax and friendly environments for capital like Vietnam. States that you might think of as you know, communist states or states that would uh, not be susceptible to this are completely susceptible to it. As soon as they get involved in the system of trade, it has uh, this pull on them. And so even, say, Vietnam, a state which theoretically is still nominally committed to communism, will produce a favorable environment for capital if that can bring a lot of jobs and investment into Vietnam. Yeah, uh, speaking of just this all-around competition, uh, I've noticed this uh, you know, in my day-to-day -day life, and I'm sure others are no noticing it too over the last few years or so, um, it, and it's just kind of accelerating now. Everything is just getting just supremely more competitive, right? Um, for instance, like if you even have like a YouTube channel, YouTube is harder now than it was two years ago versus five versus 10, obviously. Um, you know, more people uh, all around the world are aiming for the same pie. The pie is growing, but uh, people are getting progressively a smaller and smaller share of it, uh, with the exception, of course, of the top, you know, 1%, 5%. Uh, you talk about, for instance, wage stagnation in your book. Uh, I think the idea is, you know, with the exception of like maybe uh, the top 10% or so, uh, um, everybody else is just really dealing with very kind of like stagnant wages or or some are essentially just kind of going backwards. I mean, if you compare uh, inflation adjusted minimum wage, um, which was something like 12 or $13 a few decades ago, now it's seven twenty five. dollars you know, that's going to be a problem. But, you know, it's it, it's being sort of like felt. Uh, uh, in ways that I think people are ill prepared for in the sense that, I mean, we're, we're going to talk later in the show about kind of like post regimes, like post whatever, you know, the neoliberal order, whatever you want to term it that we have going on now, what that might look like and the kind of triggers that would um, uh, cause all that to occur or these shifts to occur. And, you know, my sense in all that is uh, if you, uh, are, are kind of like used to the world of the last, you know, decade or two. Uh, I feel like everybody was kind of like sold a vision in the 90s, right? All these things of like the 90s were clearly a, a very kind of illusory uh, decade. Um, uh, you know, the world is going to look kind of different. It seems like in, in the 2020s, especially, a lot of things that we took for granted, they're going to start being eroded. I, I recently did the show on this 1972 book, The Limits to Growth. Uh, it was wrong on some important respects in terms of like some of its specific predictions about, you know, the disappearance of like specific material goods, uh, composite materials, that kind of thing. But it's correct in, in the, the identifying the, tr the trend line in the fact that, look, you know, the planet does have finite resources, right? And eventually we do hit upon some kind of planetary limit. And if we, and the irony is uh, the more that we get over some of these limits, such as like, you know, new ways of producing food, suddenly we'll come upon even more perhaps existential limits, right? Now, climate change is a lot harder to deal with. 
Uh, and, um, you know, they, they keep saying, even the 70s, they kept identifying the 2020s as this kind of pivot point. And I mean, so far, we already had, you know, a decline in lifespans all around the world, right? The kind of started in the 90s, but accelerated because of COVID. Um, we have uh, other forms of stagnation, right? And this just keeps happening and happening. And specifically, in the tax regime, it seems as if to me, like, they keep trying to squeeze a stone that doesn't want to be squeezed anymore, right? We begin with a progressive tax system uh, in the time of FDR. Starting the 50s, it starts getting more regressive. In the 60s, uh, even you know, with JFK and uh, obviously, you know, Johnson was in many ways a progressive president, but at the same time, he did oversee. Uh, some of these uh, regressive tax codes, and of course, you know, by the time we get to Reagan, Bush, Trump, um, we are just not, you know, we're in the position to only cut taxes, and Democrats never reverse them. And even like uh, you, you mentioned in your book, for instance, uh, Biden is proposing this corporate minimum tax, and it's like, well, fifteen percent is already much lower than the world average for corporate taxation, and it's lower than ours, right? It's twenty-one percent after the Trump tax cuts. It was something like, I forget, either twenty or thirty-five percent um, uh, before that. So. Um, like may, maybe talk a little more about like the whole maybe a uh, comp competition and and tax taxation sort of um angle to it because it's just it's crazy to me like when I talk to Democrats and they're like yeah you know Biden's going to get an office he's going to reverse the, the tax cuts and it's just it's insane to me like I keep saying like this literally it can't actually happen and these are the structural reasons why it's impossible and everybody seems to ignore that that part of it. Yeah, everything is getting more and more competitive. And I think if we look at the 60s and 70s, the narrative that people came out with is, well, if you don't want to get squeezed the way that the steelworkers are getting squeezed or the miners are getting squeezed, you have to go to college and you have to get a degree. And for a long time, a lot of people went, well, if I'm a, a good person or a smart person, or if I'm better than most other people, I'll be fine. I just have to work harder or be smarter than other people, and then I'll be able to go to college. And if I can go to college and get a degree, then I'll be protected from these competitive structures. And of course, if everybody does that, then over time, the value of the degree gets lower. The competitive advantage it confers is reduced. The cost of it can skyrocket because people feel they need it to have a chance in life. This notion of a college degree is your ticket to life, the expression that was very popular in the late 20th century, your ticket to life, as it now becomes a lottery ticket, you're just one of many, many people with this ticket. And increasingly, now you need a master's degree, graduate degree, PhD. Even if you get those things, you find that you are now dumped into a pool of people that's much, much larger than the job pool, particularly if you're interested in jobs that are related to what it is that you went to school to study. So uh, enormous amounts of debt, very uh, reduced rates of people actually getting jobs related to the thing that they study, and universities which are increasingly trying to attract students by framing themselves as job placement organizations. So more and more focused on the instrumental aspect of the college experience to do with hooking you up with a job and less and less focus on all of the other things. It used to be that going to college to get a job would also expose you to all of elite culture. And now elite culture is not really instrumentally valuable to getting a job unless you're at a very posh university like an Ivy League school or Oxbridge. Uh, and outside of those settings, there's really not much 
point to that exposure. It's seen as instrumentally not valuable. And you look at the universities that still offer some of that stuff, liberal arts schools, HBCUs, uh, Christian colleges, those colleges are really struggling and really not doing very well because they don't have the kind of prestige that would be necessary to support engaging in these non-instrumental activities. So I think what has happened is that there's this fleeing into the universities. And that has increasingly run its course. I think there's still a feeling that if you go and do a STEM degree, that you'll be fine. And that the people who don't do STEM degrees, oh, they're stupid fools who think that they can get away with not learning how to code or learning how to do math. There's still a feeling that if you if you do math, you learn to code, you'll be protected. But part of what's fun about ChatGPT is that it's shaking people's confidence even in that. So as this has happened, I think uh, we look at, at the ordinary worker. The ordinary worker is not very likely to be working in a factory with a defined benefit pension anymore. The ordinary worker is much more likely to be in food service or in logistics, driving trucks, for instance, uh, or in retail. It's very difficult to unionize these kinds of places because the strike is much less effective. If you're shutting down a steel factory, if you shut that factory down for any length of time, even for a day, you'll cost your employer an enormous, gigantic amount of money. If you shut down a Walmart, you're really not going to cost Walmart a whole lot of cash. And it's much easier to find scab workers to staff the Walmart than it is to find people who can run a, a steel mill on short notice. Uh, and now with the self-checkout and electronic warehouses, there uh, it's easier and easier to run the economy with very, very limited workers. You also have a lot of workers who are doing stuff that isn't obviously related to production. So if knowledge workers who exist to produce content go on strike, uh, that isn't obviously related to production. So again, the ability of those workers to extract stuff from the state is, is limited. That's not a reason not to unionize or not to try, but it limits the effectiveness of these things relative to the 70s. And even in the 70s, when it was industrial workers striking. Those strikes were not able in the 70s to overcome the concentrations of wealth and power that existed in the 70s. So the situation has gotten much, much, much worse. Uh, now you've got professionals who are loaded up with debt. And in my book, I make a distinction between rump professionals who have managed to still get the things that they expected or hoped to get when they went to college and fallen professionals who are now working in jobs that are not substantially better in terms of income than traditional working class jobs. They're not much better off than someone who gets a job in the mill in the 70s. And indeed, somebody who gets a job in the mill has got a pension, which in theory, if the steel mill sticks around long enough, will be able to fund their retirement. Whereas somebody these days who works in the professions in one of the less stable, less secure, less good jobs, often will not even get that. And I think that left-wing politics is increasingly focused on people who go to university. So it has ignored a lot of what goes on with people who don't go to college. Those people are kind of written off as having failed in some way or not being smart enough or well-educated enough to really get what's going on. And a lot of uh, 60s New Left stuff straightforwardly picked on these people for cultural backwardness or reactionary qualities. And then you've got uh, professionals who are loaded up with debt. These fallen professionals are loaded up with debt, and they are hesitant to 
really acknowledge the degree to which they have been proletarianized because they still have this bit of ideology which tells them, no, no, you were smart enough to go to college. You were smart enough to get these degrees. You're good enough and smart enough and, and you you merit more than someone who can't go to college. So there's a resistance to wanting to think of themselves as in the same group with those people. And so there's a holding on to the cultural capital that you get from university, the language, the fancy words that you learn to use, the way you learn to frame things, and a kind of holding this over the head of the worker. You don't have this. I can use these terms and I can frame things this way. And that creates an estrangement and a division that makes it very difficult for the fallen professionals and the workers to come together in the same organizations and same movements. Then you've got uh, small business owners and small business owners are geographically fixed in place. So they are also being made less secure about all of this as the local economy becomes less reliable. The small business owner is more concerned about the country and the direction that it's headed in. This, however, makes it very easy for this person to be motivated to oppose policies that would lead to wage increases, oppose policies that would lead to tax increases. The small business owner is very concerned that they won't be able to survive these policies. Uh, and just as there are some number of fallen professionals who imagine that maybe one day if they work hard enough, they'll be rump professionals. There's some number of workers who imagine one day they'll start a small business and some number of small business owners who imagine if they're clever enough or smart enough, they'll become oligarchs. So there's still this, this notion that while it's not a ticket to life, um, a college degree or a business is still a lottery ticket, that it gives you a chance. And if you let go of the advantages that these things give you, even if they're ephemeral and fleeting and rarely realized, then you're just thrown into the pit with everybody else who was too stupid or not capable of climbing out of the pit. And for the people who are still nominally attached to the idea that they are in some way above the people who don't go to college or the people who work, uh, this is untenable. And this is, has made it very, very difficult to restart any kind of emancipatory politics. And every time anything starts to get going, it immediately gets divided up on this educational line. Um, well, first of all, uh, congratulations on your uh, PhD. Um, when I when I was in college, I was uh, originally just kind of planning like, all right, I'm, I was studying literature and classical studies, and I was like, all right, let me uh, let me uh, plan my courses around the possibility of a literature PhD. And although originally I started with that intention, I sort of like looked around at, at my professors. Now, granted, it's a little bit of an exceptional case since I grew up in New York City and the city schools are just kind of staffed over 50% with adjunct professors. And the way it works in New York City is you get paid essentially uh, per course and you could, you know, you could easily end up in a situation where you're functionally working like a 60 hour a week job uh, in terms of course load, grading, teaching, all of that. And uh, still, you know, come out with something like at the time, like, you know, a $30,000, $40,000 a year salary, basically making much less than uh, the value that you're giving to the universities. And I was like, well, you know, I have to be realistic here as, you know, smart or good of a writer as I think I am, blah, blah, blah. You know, the fact is, this clearly is not a, a meritocracy in the in the real like sense of the word. Uh, everybody around me who, you know, some of these people are great professors and some of them have done big research and yet here they are they're like in their 50s and 60s and they're really struggling hard 
Um, and, uh, I, and I, I remember like reading the time, like so much stuff about there was this website, uh, basically like all these disgruntled, uh, professors and PhD students that were just like, you know what, we have to just tell everybody, don't get a PhD, don't get a PhD. When I was talking with Norman Finkelstein, uh, he, you know, he's like, uh, one of the uh, best scholars on both the Holocaust as well as Israel-Palestine. When he was in Hunter College, um, you know, he was working as an adjunct. When he was elsewhere uh, working as an adjunct, and, you know, of course, eventually he got denied tenure. So, you know, there, there's a lot of politics involved. There's a lot of, uh, you know, mutual uh, resentment, not only like between workers and, you know, these like so-called professionals, but, you know, professionals within professionals, as you allude to. Um, and, you know, like this, this idea of like education, like, first of all, it's gotten more expensive. Your book cites a, a, a statistic where public education is uh, now 40 times as expensive as it used to be uh, decades ago. Private universities are something like 15 times more expensive than they used to be, only 50 times because, of course, they start from a much higher uh, a base uh, You know, requirements actually go. Um, and it seems as if that responsibility for like your wages, that is being all offloaded to the individual, right? That's another kind of trajectory that I think we should identify. The fact that uh, the trend, although I think the long-term, ultimately the, the real long-term trend is going to be towards, you know, collectivization. I think if you compare today versus like, I don't know, something like, um, you know, a thousand years ago, uh, uh, you could sort of see that. I mean, the, the mere fact that we didn't have a discussion about universal health coverage in ancient Rome, they would look at you like you're insane, right? It wouldn't even cross their minds that somebody would deserve healthcare. But, you know, um, despite this like long-term trend, this long-term period of stagnation is one of, well, you're responsible for your wages, right? Okay, go get an education. You have to now pay upfront, essentially, 30, 40, 50, $100,000 for the prospect of a decent income later on. But, you know, it's essentially up to you. It's not just you're putting in the effort and the time. They have to extract actual, you know, financial resources from you. Um, and, uh, 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 maybe you could also talk about like the, this elite culture of the resentment between the uh, not just like the run professionals and the fallen professionals, but the kind of resentments between working class people and um, and the professional class. Because I mean, like I, I live in a working class neighborhood and it's crazy when I when I talk to people. Uh, they're not, you know, they're not, they, they have like an inborn conservatism that is based on just like a hard knock life. But when you talk about politics, it's like they really don't care that much about, you know, either Democrats or Republicans. I mean, some do, but generally speaking, everybody that I speak to around me, they're very kind of suspicious. And it's very different, you know, if I talk to, you know, my more educated friends or like whatnot. Um, maybe we could talk about how these kinds of resentments emerge and how they're being used to kind of like essentially fuel a, a culture war that stands as an excuse to not actually, you know, pass necessary legislation to resolve this uh, uh, unsolvable problem. Yeah. So most of the media that gets produced, the political content, the books, the shows, all of it, most of it is produced by rump professionals, people who are successful enough economically that they are able to derive a living and a good living from talking and writing. And these people then work for oligarchs, corporations, universities, large entities, think tanks, uh, some of them directly get large amounts of money from particular rich people who just really like their work. So overwhelmingly, if you're following the news or you're following uh, the media, you're getting your content 
delivered to you by these rump professionals who are embedded in the system, who are able to have their jobs because of the degree to which they align with the values of their employers. And they've convinced themselves that they are there on merit when to a large degree they're there because they say things that the people who give out the grant money like to hear. You know, if you're applying for an academic job, one of the things that they care about is do you bring in grant money? Well, what does that mean? It means how good is your relationship with rich people and their organizations? Can you convince rich people in their organizations to give you money? Is your work close enough to their perspective or their interests that they'll give you a bunch of cash? We as a university want their cash because we don't get enough money from the state because the state can't raise enough tax revenue to fund us. So we're looking for students to give us money with giant tuition fees, and we're looking for outside money to come in from grant organizations. So how good are you at supplying that exactly? The star is the one who can bring in the most money. That's what makes a star academic a star academic. It has nothing to do with merit or how good the work is or how smart anybody is or how hard anybody works, frankly. So there is, uh, I, I think, an enormous uh, frustration on the part of traditional workers that none of the political content is really for them. None of it really echoes their interests. Uh, the Fallen professionals are more likely to think that this content that the rent professionals are making uh, is for them. They want to believe that they're educated and they're smarter than the workers. So they, of course, read the good sources. They follow the people who are smart, the experts, the scientists, the people who uh, go to the good universities. Indeed, if you're a professional, you went to college. So on some level, you thought you'd get something out of it. You thought these people had something positive to teach you. So there tends to be more belief among the fallen professionals in the elites and in the rump professionals that the elites employ. And indeed, a lot of the rump professionals will kind of allow you to pat yourself on the head if you watch their stuff or you read their stuff. They'll go, come on, we're, we're the people who are in the know. And those other people, they read the fake news and they're getting deceived by the Russians and they don't know what's going on. We know what's going on and you know because you follow along with what I am making. So I think that what that does is it makes it very, very difficult for the ordinary working class person to follow politics in a way that's constructive, because if they are consuming the establishment media, they're getting perspectives that are totally uninterested in helping them out. If they try to come up with their own theories and their own frameworks for understanding what's going on, it's very difficult for them because they're not in the kinds of organizations that would produce a surplus within the working class that would allow for someone who was working class to also be a writer. If you think back to the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know these unions had little newsletters and bulletins and pamphlets. And there were some number of people that were in the union who would write up about what was going on and try to help the ordinary person think about what was going on. There were newspapers back in the day that were for the workers, that were written by workers. None of that exists anymore. So now when the working class person tries to understand politics, it's from a kind of self-taught autodidact position. And the autodidact is very easy to take advantage of mm -hmm. because the autodidact hasn't been told what to read and struggles, therefore, to distinguish what's worth reading from what's not worth reading uh, and can easily get derailed and sucked into various kinds of holes and pits, right? Now, demonizing the person who falls into these holes and, and traps 
is a very effective way of keeping the fallen professionals reading only the establishment sources and paying attention only to the things that they're supposed to pay attention to. At the same time, it is the case that the self-taught autodidact who isn't in a labor union, who doesn't read pamphlets, doesn't read uh, old-fashioned lefty newspapers, doesn't have a whole lot to work with, and does tend to make mistakes. So what tends to happen is that the uh, worker will develop a kind of hostile anti-elite attitude that can get sucked up into things like anti-Semitism, right? And the uh, professional will develop a hostile attitude to the far right and therefore to workers who pay attention because workers who pay attention tend to fall down these right-wing rabbit holes. So this means that you don't really have much of a functioning left within the traditional working class. The left becomes largely a fallen professional phenomenon, and the right becomes uh, something that feeds off of the degree to which the ordinary worker is atomized and uh, an autodidact and not sure where to go or what to do. So there's an exploitation of the atomization of the traditional worker and also an exploitation of the feelings of precarity felt by the fallen professional. And so on every cultural issue under the sun, they get polarized against each other. And so then anytime you start to see any collaboration on things like Medicare for all or tuition-free college or job guarantee or infrastructure spending or anything that would really involve a sizable collaboration, what will happen is that there will be a deliberate effort to introduce cultural issues onto the political agenda that will create antagonism. And we're seeing, for instance, in France, they were having a big struggle against Macron over pensions. Now the police have shot someone who comes from a minority ethnic background. So now there's a whole argument about police violence and race and immigration, and it's dissecting the movement and breaking it up into its component parts and pitting the more educated left-leaning part against the less educated right-leaning part. And when I say you know, conspiracy theory in the book, what I'm really talking about are these theories that working class people get that are based on an autodidact point of view that uh, ascribe a lot of agency or intentionality to particular individuals or groups and which tend to downplay or ignore systematic effects. So things like capital mobility as an incentive environment that gradually drags everybody, whether they want to be dragged or not, in a particular direction. Those things get downplayed in conspiracy theories in favor of theories which place blame on a specific group of individuals who have a plot or a specific group, ethnicity, race, religion, that uh, is fundamentally viewed as, as bad or untrustworthy. Uh, let, let's stay with the conspiracy uh, theory stuff um, for a little bit. Uh, but first, let me comment on uh, the riots in, in France. So one fascinating element to especially race riots, and I don't know how true this is the world over, but specifically in the United States, uh, every single race riot that I have ever looked into uh, and I try to find like, what is the, you know, what is the kind of like, I don't want to say the, 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 the total cost, but like, what is the proximal cause, right? What What is the near-term event that triggered this? And in every case that I've seen, it's an instance of police brutality, 
right? Against a black person, for instance, right? This is true of Watts. Uh, this is true of early race riots in the 1900s, right? This is true, obviously, in uh, the George Floyd protests. Um, and in France specifically, uh, I believe it was a 16 or 17-year-old boy that got shot. He was just essentially just driving in a car uh, that he was not supposed to be driving. Uh, try to uh, uh, Maybe he tried to like uh, escape from a cop. But anyway, whatever it was, it was like a totally unjustified uh, murder. And I, you know, when I think about history, I, I try to like dissuade people from viewing things in a purely kind of like accident, like, you know, history is full of accidents because, um, you know, in the instance of like, we're, like we're seeing now, right, that these protests are originally about economic conditions have now become uh, about race and whatnot. Uh, I think, you know, there's there's obvious structural reasons that you could use to explain, even if not specifically this case, you know, a thousand similar cases like it would have played out in such a way where uh, you have, let's say, a cop, maybe he's like resentful the fact that he has to deal with these, you know, minorities, uh, maybe they have, you know, like extra levels of poverty and, you know, structural issues. And uh, it just comes out that this one guy, not to say that all cops would do this, but it comes out that in this specific case, if you run that simulation a thousand times, many of these cops are going to shoot this boy, right? And for structural reasons, it seems as if things are set up in such a way where the economics and that discussion has to be defanged, right? That is always the bottom line, right? We have to go as far away as possible uh, from this as we can. Now, uh, on the issue of conspiracy theories, like I think like a more... Uh, like there hasn't been enough like meta discussion of, of what it really means to, you know, indulge in conspiracy theories, because obviously, you know, we have like uh, anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories. We have a lot of like sort of like George Soros stuff. We have things like uh, you know, 2020 election was stolen on the behalf of Democrats. Um, and what frustrates me about so many of these things is they start with a kind of like structural kernel, at least, of understanding, right? Um, in the instance of 2020, uh, you can't say that, you know, Biden had fewer votes in the totals, right, versus Trump. I think it's pretty obvious that Biden won that election. But it's very easy to get a bunch of people thinking that American democracy is illegitimate because in a very kind of fundamental sense, depending on how we define democracy, depending on whether or not we broaden the definition versus, you know, limit it, uh, you know, American democracy just does seem kind of like it's bullshit. And it's very easy to understand how somebody could run away with that and go to like the most crass form of, you know, like election denialism, for instance, right? That's a very crass form of conspiracy thinking. Um, and also like, uh, besides the fact that there's like conspiracies that have like an element of truth that needs to really be sort of uh, discussed and, you know, perhaps like resolved in some way so that conspiracies themselves get defanged. Uh, there's, there's conspiracies on the educated side as well. I mean, at this point, I'm sorry to say, uh, COVID-19 uh, has become for left-wingers a conspiracy theory in the sense that they're totally ignoring it at this point. Now, I was one of these people that thought there were definitely some irrational restrictions in 2021, especially after people got vaccinated. I remember being annoyed at the fact that I couldn't go to my like former university. I wanted to go inside with like, you know, uh, to like, I needed to use the research library. And they said, no, 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 you can't go inside, even if you're masked, even if you're vaccinated. To me, it was crazy because like, well, everyone is masked, everyone's social distance, and everybody in that building is vaccinated as a rule. So what's the big deal? And yet a couple months after having that thought, 
literally everything went out the window, right? All the masks got dropped. If you go into a train, nobody's masked, for instance. And in January 2022, uh, when all this started happening, that's when we started getting all these studies coming out. Uh, for instance, that okay, even if you are vaccinated, look at this, like, you know, X number of people call COVID and a subset of them now have their, their brains shrunk by 2% or 3%, you know, really insane stuff. This person catches COVID, uh, this cohort uh, has COVID and they have like a substantially higher risk now of some kind of cardiovascular event, right? And these are things that are very difficult to deal with, right? Nobody, first of all, wants to like, you know, believe that COVID is still around, right? Because it was so annoying at the time and it was scary at the time. But now it's like if the state does not really have an ability to deal with these like long-term consequences, like if their idea is like, reinfect, reinfect, reinfect. It's not a big deal if you're vaccinated. And yet we're just creating a kind of like chronic, you know, crisis this time of like, you know, medically, um, they're not going to want to resolve that because it's just so difficult to do. So now we have this conspiracy theory where it's fine if you catch it once, twice, three, four times, 10 times, who cares, right? I have people that were total COVID geeks, right? Democrats in 2020, they tell me now the COVID is just a little cold, right? And it's clearly untrue. So th that is a conspiracy as bad as, you know, anti-vax shit, right? It's, it's just, you know, um, and it's just amazing how so many people that are like educated, they could get away with, you know, structuring their entire worldview around essentially conspiracy theories. And yet it's done in a way where you can't really call them out on it. Well, because they're following the rump professionals who are saying yeah. it's safe to do this or it's not safe to do that. In both cases, what's really going on is you've got fallen professionals who are following the rump professionals because by following the rump professionals, the people who once upon a time were their professors, that makes them feel educated, makes them feel superior to the people who don't follow the advice. It really comes down to, are you following the right people or are you not? Uh, in a way, it's a little bit like a, a cult around a guru, in, especially when specific figures become totems like you know, Anthony Fauci. If you're following Fauci, then you're, you're following the guru. Mm -hmm. And if you're not following Fauci, then you're not, regardless of which direction. You know, if you're not following, then you're engaged in some other kind of, of uh, project. I think that uh, a lot of what goes on can be explained by the government is trying to win the next election. And this is the thing that a lot of conspiracy theories, they posit all kinds of intentions and, and plots, and they treat a lot of these events as, as isolated criminal acts by groups of people. And really, it comes down to what are the structural incentives that govern the thing? Well, if you kick up inflation or if you kick up unemployment, or if you have a run on your currency, those things will have very negative effects on your ability to win the next election. And then your political career will be over and in quite ignominiously so. So with COVID, the question for the elected official is, what will allow me to stay in office? Measures that make it look like I'm trying to fight COVID or measures that make it look like I care about the economy. And that is something that changes over time, depending on how bad the economic situation is, depending on how bad the COVID situation is or appears to be on the basis of how it's being portrayed in the media. And of course, in the media, there will be points where you have an incentive to talk about COVID cases because that's what's getting clicks. And there will be points where you have an incentive to talk about the economy because that's what's getting clicks. So a lot of this policy is just based on what is the perception of particular leaders of what their reelection odds are. 
And how far away from the election are you? Do you have an election that's coming up very soon? If you're Donald Trump and you have an election in 2020 that you need to win, you're going to be really scared about having an economy that's in shambles running into that election. And Donald Trump freaked out so much about this. He rolled back the trade war with China and started relaxing all of those policies to try to cushion the economy so that he could win the election. You think back to 1972 when Richard Nixon dumped an enormous amount of stimulus money into the U.S. economy to drive the growth rate up to 7% so that he could be guaranteed to win in 72. If politicians have the ability to rig the economy up to be good in an election year, they will try to do that. And uh, you know, conversely, though, if, if they're more worried about the pandemic than they are about the economy for the purposes of re-election, then they'll tend to tighten things up. And so I think a lot of people were looking for some kind of coherent public health position. And so when there wasn't a coherent public health position, they went, ah, these, these people must be out to in some way deceive us or hurt us because they're being hypocritical. Well, what's hypocritical isn't uh, the science per se. What's hypocritical is the state. The state is constantly in a need to balance different competing values that don't fit together neatly with one another. A politician who's leading a state must be seen at some instances to care about the virus and seen at other instances to care about the economy and has to you know, appear in these different ways in front of these different audiences. And with television and with the internet, we see politicians in front of all their audiences. It used to be that you'd only see the politician when he came to talk to you. And now you see the politician in front of every audience under the sun. This drives someone like Kamala Harris crazy. When she was in California and she wasn't very well known, she could go to private meetings with people and say one thing to one group of people and another thing to another group of people and rely on those people never to talk to each other. But now every time she talks, she's on camera and everybody records everything that she says. So she's constantly caught out saying things that don't fit together. And people go, oh, is she, is she a hypocrite? They're, well, there's an underlying logic to Kamala Harris, which is that Kamala Harris is doing everything she can to be as electable as possible because she's an ambitious politician. And that means saying whatever she needs to say. Her problem is that she hasn't updated her behavior to fit with the media environment that she's in. She is not able to deal with the big stage and with the bright lights. And when we talk about you know, presidential candidates and campaigns, this is often one of the main things we talk about, especially with governors or people who come out of state politics. They are not used to an environment where everything they say will be watched with that level of intensity. They are more accustomed to being able to say different things to different people. The strategy when you're in front of a big audience tends to be say something that everybody can see what they want to see in it. And Obama was very good at this. Hope and change. What's the content of it? It's whatever you want it to be. It's whatever you need it to be. If it gets too specific, then that undermines the ability of Obama to position it as anything under the sun. A lot of politicians struggle to be able to say things that are sufficiently open to allow the voter to project what they want onto the statement. And that gets a lot of politicians in trouble. They overcommit in front of particular people and then they get trapped. And this is the kind of stuff that I think really explains what's going on. Things to do with inflation, unemployment, electability, things to do with messaging and what kind of messaging works for what audiences and who are you in front of and who are you worried about. Politicians are sometimes worried about one audience and at other times they're worried about a different audience. And that's all contextual.
let's discuss the, the core issue, I guess, of uh, wages. Um, prior to doing the show, uh, I, I, I feel like I do this at least once a year where I sort of sit down and I do a deep day, deep dive on have wages really stagnated and to what extent and why? Because there's so much like opposition to this idea. Like for instance, if you, you know, if you type in wage stagnation plus Reddit, a ton of, of results are from the uh, ask, uh, uh, ask Economist subreddit, which is like a, it's a pretty right-wing subreddit. You have like a user names that I was reading today, like a, a Barry Goldwater lover, uh, among others. And so uh, they're kind of like in denial about this. And I, I think there is something to the idea that for uh, perhaps, you know, maybe it's a majority, maybe it's a plurality, but let's just say for the sake of argument, a large percentage of Americans have improved their standard of living compared to like may maybe 50 years ago. Um, uh, again, we could talk about the specific numbers, uh, but I, I think in terms of like messaging, what people should really focus on is the following. So first of all, uh, if you just break it according to the lines of productivity versus wages, it's obvious that productivity is way, way, way higher and wages have not kept up with productivity. There was a time when productivity and wages were more or less you know, going uh, in a similar kind of trajectory and you could sort of overlap both of those lines in a chart in some way. Uh, that has declined, uh, I believe, uh, specifically uh, in your book, uh, your ultimate conclusion is uh, an 8% increase wage adjusted uh, uh, in uh, inflation adjusted wages uh, since the 70s and yet something like over 300% increase in GDP. Right. Uh, clearly, that that GDP, the only like the only re like when I said before, like you know things are getting more and more competitive. It's not even so much that I'm against this notion of competition. I'm more so interested in competition for what? What exactly are we competing over? Because you know it's great to say that America's GDP is increasing, but if that does not really truly substantially increase your standard of living. Uh, it's worthless, right? That GDP is totally worthless for the average person. Now, even if we do say that uh, a median or a mean or even like a large percentage of Americans are enjoying uh, wage growth, uh, given the way that politics works in America, we have to be very cognizant of the fact that uh, even if the median wages are higher, uh, there are sub you know groups within this median where it's the exact opposite. Right. Um, starting the 90s is when white men started experiencing for the first time uh, this cuts into their lifespans. And, you know, it was uh, ironically, it was, you know, obviously it happened much more dramatically in places like Russia because of the collapse of the USSR. But it was also happening in the United States as well. And that has accelerated under COVID and whatnot. Uh, and those groups, right, many of them, they did not have this median increase in wages. They just didn't. Uh, maybe they had jobs that weren't necessarily that well paid, but they were like small business owners and Walmart comes in and suddenly, you know, the town uh, turns into like a fentanyl town. Uh, and there's like a loss of dignity, right? That could even cut a lot harder than just a loss in wages. And the fact that these sub-medians kind of exist, um, uh, uh, we know that there's going to be people like Trump that take advantage of these of these subgroups, right? And there's no way around that, right? I mean, like Biden, yes, he won by historic kind of margin um, in terms of a popular vote, but 
he almost lost uh, the election by like 10,000 votes in this state, you know, 20,000 votes in other state. And this is really what matters, right? And if you truly do believe that, you know, Trump is uh, the second coming of Hitler and that he's going to inaugurate fascism, obviously you need to be worried about what's happening with this 10,000, 20,000 you know, vote, voting block that is going to swing the other way. So I, I just wonder if you agree with me, both this kind of like general uh, idea about wages and also that the messaging should really focus on, hey, look, you know, your productivity is so high, you're doing so much for your employer, but you're getting nothing. And by the way, there's these like subgroups that really are going to be the swing voters, essentially. Like, what do you think about all that? Yeah, real wages have been falling since uh, Q1 2021, as we have been coming out of COVID and inflation has spiked. Wages have dropped, uh, adjusted for inflation over the last couple of years. There was a brief spike up during COVID, but it's spiking back down now. And I think a lot of people thought that COVID was going to permanently transform the situation, but a pandemic without any organization, any uh, real strong labor organization is not going to produce any kind of permanent transformation to relations of power, especially when it doesn't disrupt capital mobility or international trade uh, very far. I think one of the things also to bear in mind is that when we talk about the inflation adjustment, not only are we talking about, say, the median or sometimes even the average, which can be heavily influenced by what's going on for people at the top, but also when we talk about inflation, there are some stuff in the basket of inflation that have uh, seen price increases that are lower than the statutory inflation rate and other stuff where the prices increased much higher than the statutory inflation rate. And generally, the stuff that has increased at a lower rate is stuff that is not as important as the stuff that has increased at a higher rate. And the three things that I would draw attention to that have increased at a much higher rate than the statutory rate are healthcare, mm -hmm. college education, and housing. Those are the things that have gone absolutely crazy through the roof. And they're some of the basic fundamental things that people need to live de decent lives. The things that have gone up at lower rates are things like televisions, personal computers, appliances, cars. Uh, these are things that, while you know, certainly important and, and beneficial, are not as important as those basic fundamental things. And generally, the market doesn't distinguish between is this something that people need or is this something that people don't need? It's just a question of what are people buying? And because people will always buy healthcare and education and housing, uh, almost no matter what the market conditions are, it's very, very difficult to blunt demand for those things because people need these things to get by. They might be able to settle for renting instead of buying a house or going to community college instead of going to a four-year college or going to their local doctor rather than traveling into a major city to go to a big uh, famous hospital. They'll make certain adjustments in the standard that they accept, but people will not just uh, not go to college generally, and people will not forego healthcare generally, and people will not just live in the street. Some number of people will do all of these things and be badly disadvantaged for it, but most people will not. Uh, and that gives the firms that provide those services incredible leverage over ordinary people and incredible leverage over the economy. It is not at all in the interest of the healthcare sector for healthcare to become affordable or in the higher ed sector for the university to become affordable or 
in the housing sector for housing to become affordable. If there were any drop in the cost of these things, it would result in major job losses and contraction of these sectors. The biggest argument against Medicare for all is that if your goal is to reduce, say, healthcare as a percentage of GDP from 17 or 18 percent, where it is now in the United States, to a number that is similar to the number that you would see in another Western country, which is around 10 percent, you would destroy an enormous number of jobs in the course of doing that, unless you also had a policy to transition all of those people to some other kind of work. And the most negative disruption that would be caused by a move to Medicare for all is just figuring out what to do with all these unnecessary workers that we have in insurance, in hospital administration, and even you know, in some cases in, in things like nursing, where there's just been an enormous explosion in the definition of what counts as nursing uh, and an enormous pouring of people into uh, these jobs and in, into these roles. So if we actually wanted to get control of these things, we would have to really disrupt these sectors in quite fundamental ways to get control. And that's why every time we start talking about fixing these things, everybody goes, oh, you know, if you try to reform it, we're all going to leave the profession. If you try to reform it, we're all going to, uh, what will we do? Because we would actually have to contract these sectors substantially. They've become so overgrown through the market leverage that the firms that provide these services have achieved that it's a, a big lift and it requires concentrated political power. It's not enough for it to just be what's best for the ordinary person. You really need organization to break the influence of these sectors, the, the uh, firms and oligarchs that dominate these sectors, the very, very strong positions that they're in. Uh, if you see, if, for example, you would put some of these comments to some of these Redditors, like an objection would be like, well, you know, housing costs have gone up. This is true. But at the same time, first of all, uh, most people only buy a house only once. But then again, you know, it's the only kind of multi hundred thousand dollar purchase they would ever make in their life. You know, not, you know, and it's very large. Right. So um, but uh, the, the the space per person has really gone up substantially, something like two times or whatever compared to like something the 50s or 60s. So you're essentially paying, uh, a, you know, just like as we do like inflation adjusted here, I guess the inflation would be inflation in size, more people taking on more and more space. Uh, housing is actually, with the exception of like the big cities, housing is more or less keeping uh, with inflation, but not, not it's not like substantially going higher than that. Um, and they would say something like, uh, uh, well, you know, healthcare is uh, uh, expensive and wages uh, might be down in some regards. But if you look at total compensation, you know, things like healthcare, uh, obviously uh, people are, uh, you know, experiencing uh, more and more kind of like uh, benefits, I guess, in some ways when it comes to healthcare. But, you know, my, my response would be like, well, look, uh, it's simply because healthcare is just kind of going up. Uh, substantially, right? These these yeah, are not. They benefits. love to try to make the argument yeah, yeah. that total it, compensation has gone feel, up, you know, because your health insurance has become way more expensive for your mm -hmm. employer to buy for you. Exactly. It's a terrible argument that no way improves the circumstance of the ordinary person. They also like to cough up this stuff about oh, the square footage of the houses is getting bigger. That just implies that only very rich people are buying homes. So mm -hmm. because wealthy people are buying homes, those homes are bigger. And then everybody else is renting and trapped and not able to get out from renting. Yeah. And that, you know, this is something because it's a purchase that you only make once generally, and you only make once when you're, you know, in your 20s or 30s, it's something which sets 
your wealth and your position in society to a very substantial degree. So if you need to buy a house at a time when you would be badly disadvantaged versus other people in previous generations who've bought houses, uh, and you don't buy a house and you continue renting or you buy the wrong house, uh, these are things that will permanently change not just your situation, but the situation of your whole family uh, in terms of the location of the house, the quality of the school district the house is in. All of these things completely change somebody's life chances, their children's life chances. So it blights an entire generation when people are dealing with, for many, many years at a time, incredibly high house prices. Uh, you get entire societies where you have, for instance, in the United Kingdom, a whole generation of people who own the vast bulk of the housing stock is owned by retirees now in the UK. Uh, retirees and, of course, very wealthy landowners. And so it's almost impossible for someone to get on if they're younger. And we're moving in that direction here. We haven't gone as far as the UK has or as, say, Canada has. Canada is another country with a terrible housing stock problem. Uh, but we're moving in that direction. And the economists are just complacent about this. They don't care. And they don't care because economists are generally well compensated as people. Mm -hmm. And they're doing fine themselves personally. Yeah. Uh, another, you know, item about housing that they would never go to is they, they would sort of present this housing critique. You know, it's two times the square footage or whatever, but it's like, well, shouldn't the, the question there be, why are we permitting the construction of such large houses at a time when, you know, people are having fewer kids, for instance, like uh, that, that would be considered, you know, too much of an encroachment on personal freedom. And, you know, to me, it's like this whole concept of how freedom gets, you know, divvied up, how it gets discussed. Uh, there's, there's always this idea that, um, you know, your personal freedom is kind of totalizing, but nobody ever really stops to think, uh, where your freedoms truly either end or ought to end, right? Because uh, just generally speaking, people, especially if you're well-positioned in society, you don't want to imagine an end to your freedom. Uh, maybe you could actually uh, talk about that portion of your book where you're just kind of discussing, I guess, different concepts of freedom, the way that Isaiah uh, uh, Berlin, for instance, was uh, brought you know, to like, I guess, undergraduates is like, this is the only conception of freedom that is uh, worth really discussing how how have these sort of like top-down versions of freedom you know impacted our discussions yeah so as i think people's confidence in this system has eroded there is a loss of legitimacy and a looking for other kinds of procedures or other kinds of ways of thinking or framing our society or our system that would cause us to think that it has the potential to work and i think that one of the ways that we uh, that our state and our institutions try to deal with our loss of confidence is to try to find ways to reconceptualize or reframe some of the important values or concepts that are important to people so that they can see those values reflected in the society in which they live. Or if not reflected, they can see that there's some kind of genuine effort being made to reflect those values, something they could participate in. So you might say, oh, the society is not fully equal. It's not fully free. The government's not fully representative. But it could be, if you uh, try, it's not so far away from exhibiting these, these things. And often this is done in the universities by framing these terms in ways that suggest particular ways of thinking about them. And it's it's done often in a way that suggests that you're giving students complexity. So if you come to university in high school, you're not gonna be told you know, what, what does liberty mean? You're not gonna be told what equality means. 
you're not going to go into a, a big discussion about what representation is, in part because if you tried to argue about these things in the high schools, all the parents would get very angry, as indeed is happening with U.S. history right now. All the parents get very angry if U.S. history is taught in a way that conflicts with their values or what they care about. So for that reason, in the high schools, there's a lowest common denominator civics education that just focuses on mechanistically, how does a bill become a law? What are the branches of government? It doesn't get into values or what the thing is for. That's left to your parents to tell you. If there is any gesturing at values, the values aren't defined. When you get to college, if you decide that you want to take classes in these areas, you will get offered some definitions of these terms, but the definitions tend to be fixed or you get a very narrow range of choices. And these structured choices, do you want uh, positive liberty or negative liberty? Do you want equality of opportunity or quality of outcome? Do you want delegate or trustee representation? These binary choices give you an appearance of having options of, of different ways of thinking and a free and open discussion. But then there are the things that are never mentioned or never brought up that would potentially allow you to make much more demanding, uh, to have much bigger demands that you might make on the institutions or on the system. So in the case of liberty, Isaiah Berlin, who hated the Soviet Union, was an old school cold warrior, uh, he frames liberty as either positive or negative. If it's a negative liberty or negative freedom, that's freedom from the coercion of others. So you are allowed to go out and uh, buy a bit, as big a house as you want, and nobody will stop you. You can buy as much land as you want, construct as large a structure as you want. Nobody will stop you. You have positive liberty to build a giant McMansion for yourself, right? Even if the neighborhood could be split up into a hundred different plots. You can build a giant palace the size of you know, Nero's golden house and nobody will interfere with you. You have negative freedom, right? Positive liberty for Berlin focuses on the freedom to do things, you know, the freedom to buy a house. But Berlin argues that if you try to secure positive freedom, that this will necessarily involve the state having a vision for how you're supposed to live, a singular vision that it imposes. And therefore, what begins as a right to own a home becomes the state uh, ensuring or forcing everybody to live in the same kind of home, in the same kind of box. And that this uh, takes away an enormous amount of freedom insofar as it starts compelling people down particular paths or particular tracks. And Berlin is particularly worried about this when it comes to things like the education system, you know, that you have to go to school and you have to learn these things, because if you don't, you won't be a fully developed person. And we have a conception of what it means to be a fully developed, realized person. Here are the things you need to be able to do, the capabilities you need to have, and uh, you, therefore you have to go to school. For him, it wouldn't be that different from saying you have to go to church to become a good Christian or a good Catholic. And if you don't, then your soul will be in danger and the state will ensure that you go so that your soul is not in danger. Now, this framing is very persuasive for a lot of people. A lot of people read this and go, oh, yes, negative liberty. That is really the most important thing in society. Uh, and even when uh, people do make defenses of positive liberty, it's always a defense of it against the Berlin critique. So you are always starting off on the back foot with positive liberty. A lot 
there are at this point lots of other ways of thinking about liberty that are in political theory. There are political theorists who have come up with many, many more additional ways. People like Quentin Skinner, Raymond Goyce have cataloged far more ways of understanding this stuff and have pointed out that in Berlin's work, he runs together different conceptualizations of freedom to draw equivalences. So for instance, when we're talking about positive liberty, at one point, Berlin talks about freedom from uh, domination, right? So I want to make my own choices without having to worry about what somebody else is wanting me to do. I want to be able to decide things for myself. I want to be able to participate in politics and give my own input without having to worry about someone else's judgment or Right. So that's that's not a freedom from interference. It's a freedom to speak your mind. Right. And yet he gets from that to this idea that to secure these opportunities to speak, you would need to have this totalizing society that might start to resemble the Soviet Union. And of course, once you get to this Soviet Union type society for Berlin. Now you don't really have either freedom really in any kind of very functional sense. You have whatever it is that the Soviet Union gives you in terms of housing and healthcare and education, and that's it. You have to do those things. You don't get a choice. But there's this rich tradition of thinking about um, the relationships that we have and the way that those relationships affect what we do, even when people are not interfering in our affairs, right? So if you are married and you have a spouse, you worry a little bit that what you do might upset your spouse. And if your spouse gets upset, what this will do to you, right? So in some ways you depend on your spouse, you need your spouse to to like what you're doing. And if you ignore that too much, then problems occur. Similarly, if you work for an employer, you have to worry about your employer not liking what you do. And that might cause you to... Not that you would get fired necessarily, but maybe you won't get promoted or you won't get a raise. There's something that you need from the employer. And because you need this thing, it gives the employer influence over what you do. Now, this can be the case, even if your employer explicitly says to you or your spouse explicitly says to you, I want you to have whatever it is that you want. I want you to write whatever you want, make whatever you want. I'm not going to interfere with you in any way, right? Even if somebody says all of this to you, it's still the case that you're going to be worried that at some point in the future that may change or that they may not have really been fully honest with you about what their expectations are. So if you get your money from somebody else, the fact that you get your money from somebody else makes you depend on them. And that in and of itself restricts your freedom in certain ways, even if they never intervene directly in your life, even if you signed a contract with them, which seems to be a, you know an equal agreement between two parties. Uh, it's not really an equal agreement because you need the money to live. And they don't have to hire you. So you're depending on them. And they don't depend on you in the same way. Uh, And no matter how you try to frame that contractually, it's not an equal relationship fundamentally. Uh, And in, say, a traditional marriage, uh, if, say, the woman doesn't have independent resources and the man does, that makes the marriage contract not an equal marriage contract in certain respects, which at minimum have to be acknowledged and discussed. So... All of that stuff gets elided in Berlin's conceptualization, because for Berlin, positive liberty includes all of that stuff, because that's all about what you have the freedom to do. Another thing that Berlin doesn't really talk about is that you know the state can view uh, multiple different conflicting ways of life as being freedom involving. So for instance, in Germany or in France, uh, the secular state, nonetheless, can support 
various kinds of cultural or religious organizations to varying degrees. And in supporting those things, it's, it's a, they're creating a civil society. So the state is involved in constructing a civil society that gives people lots of different ways of living, different options. Now, to some degree, the fact that the state is involved in funding or supporting these things makes these things dependent on the state and reduces their freedom to be anti-state. So in some way, it keeps the civil society organizations on the side of the state. At the same time, these civil society organizations are often meaningfully different from each other. In Germany, all of the religions that are recognized by the state get some level of support from the state. But of course, to get that support, you have to not be engaged in anti-state terroristic activity or advocating for anti-state terroristic activity. So if you don't have that kind of environment and you have the state not get involved in that at all on the grounds that that kind of uh, you know, trying to positively ensure people have access to civil society organizations would be an intervention which colors too much the kinds of civil society organizations that can exist. The consequence of that is that you leave it up to markets. In the United States, where the government doesn't get involved at all in religion, the market determines what kinds of churches are dominant. And if the state doesn't get involved in the school system, the market will determine what kinds of school systems are dominant. And just as the state can shape all of these things, market enforce forces, impersonal forces, shape these things and color what kinds of institutions and structures they can give rise to. And this stuff can't really be acknowledged as freedom involving if we are just talking about is there a direct intervention, right? If the state gets out of the way and leaves things and doesn't intervene, then the market will only give you certain options and not others. And that loss of options uh, is a meaningful loss of freedom. Uh, sometimes you can have lots and lots of options, but in a trivial area at the expense of some other possibility that would be more meaningful. So in, yeah, in that chapter, I do that with liberty. I also do it with equality and equity. And I talk about representation in terms of how uh, in the academy, these binaries are constructed to give students a sense that they are engaging with a real deep discussion, when in point of fact, they have been introduced to something which hollows out and narrows the debate in ways that heavily restrict how they're able to think about politics. Um, speaking of this like suspicion of like, you know, Isaiah Berlin did not like this uh, idea of like top down, there's one way of doing things. Uh, personally, I think we need, you know, given the trajectory of the last a few decades, we probably need more of that um, as opposed to less of it, right? There are certain things, obviously, that should be just kind of like the way certain things are done. Um, uh, but uh, I mean, like we're 75 minutes in or so, and we still haven't really discussed your critique of democracy and uh, the uh, kind of like how democracy gets used by, uh, let's just before we get to like even the questions of like what is left right and center uh but just let's for the sake of argument the left and the right right i mean obviously 2020 the most important election of your lifetime uh 2016 was also the most important election of my lifetime 2012 right because if 2008 was the most important election of my lifetime if you don't vote for obama in 2012 it means that the racists have won out right because he deserves a second term clearly 
how, so how uh, like, but you don't actually buy uh, these attacks, so-called attacks on democracy, right? Uh, by the left and the right, you argue that in fact, democracy in the kind of generic sense, in the technical sense, I guess, is much more robust than people tend to assume. So I guess like, uh, what's your uh, take on the following? Number one, um, just, I guess the generic the idea of like, what is democracy? Does America truly fall into that in the technical sense? If we expand the definition, are we now eroding uh, democracy? Because there's definitely, you know, segments of the population that I think you could argue that really don't experience the democratic process at all, sometimes voluntarily sometimes semi-voluntarily, sometimes just kind of structurally, this is where they're uh, put into. Um, people, for example, in the, uh, you know, the the law enforcement, uh, uh, like when people go through the justice system, for instance, right? Uh, uh, obviously, like if, if you grew up in a neighborhood where your uh, option, like everybody has options to do illegal things, right? If you are a CEO, your options for doing illegal things are both all kinds of shit. You could do almost anything, right? Um, and you could also get away with it. You could cause much more carnage, right? You could poison a, a river and kill tens of thousands of people slowly, right? And people won't really notice if it's slow enough. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're uh, in the street, for instance, and some of the ethnicities that kind of like divide, you know, along uh, uh, those kinds of street crimes, like when people talk about crime, they never want to differentiate, you know, street crime versus other kinds of crime. Uh, you know, if you're in the street, the kinds of crimes that are open to you are uh, much higher risk, not only to yourself, but to the person that you're victimizing. And you're also getting just a lot less in return, right? I mean, people have killed people over like uh, several hundred dollars, mugging them, that sort of thing. Uh, CEOs, they're not going to, you know, to them, that's chump change, right? They're not going to, uh, they're not going to put themselves through that. Um, so uh, I guess, like, what are your ideas, first of all, about how we define democracy and how like it seems like people are kind of absent from the democratic process depending on what contingent you look at and secondarily how robust really is uh, america's democracy yeah so i would say that the definition of democracy is at this point heavily contested to the point where we can have our thoughts about what we think would count as democracy but it would almost be irrelevant because whatever it is that i would tell you this is what democracy is Lots of people would disagree with me. Uh, if I were to lay out what are the different conceptualizations of democracy that are out there in the literature, you know, there's Joseph Schumpeter's minimalist conception, which is just multiple parties that compete with each other in elections that are genuinely competitive that either party might win. You can frame it in terms of, uh, you know, procedural fairness that everybody has you know, roughly the same level of input into decision making. Well, very clearly, we don't have democracy in anything like that sense. It can be in a kind of a big, broad, uh, are the people ruling sense. But that's a sense that's compatible with having a dictator who claims that I'm acting on behalf of the people and the people are clearly with me. You can see this in their behavior. A dictator can frame themselves as democratic in that kind of a big picture representative sense. Uh, there's lots and lots of different ways of thinking about it. What I think is distinctive about now is that people don't agree, that people want very different procedures from one another. And because they want these very different procedures, uh, very often the procedures that somebody else thinks will fix democracy or make it work better will appear to you as procedures that would make democracy work worse and might be authoritarian, right? So what I think is, is going on now 
is that the understandings of democracy are so different from one another that, uh, but there is a widespread agreement that the system doesn't work and is dysfunctional. So everybody's trying to purify or fix the system, but in different ways. And everybody else thinks that what everybody's doing is some kind of authoritarianism. So the um, if you are, say, on the left and you want to make it easier for people to vote, there's someone on the right who will say that you're trying to make the elections uh, open to voter fraud and you're trying to steal them so that you can install a one-party regime that can't be defeated, right? Maybe you want to go to something like proportional representation. The right will go, ah, you're, you want to do this so that you can lock us out of power so that we can never win again, right? Maybe you want to abolish the Supreme Court because you think that judicial review is a uh, constraint, um, the rule of the people. Well, there will be people on the right who will say, ah, actually, judicial review is essential to a constitutional system, and you're trying to get the system uh, to empower the president. Conversely, what do people on the right look to do? Well, they try to pass these voter fraud laws, which to the left look like voter suppression laws, or they uh, try to make a system where the that's more strongly presidential, where the president has uh, more authority, potentially. Uh, under, say, Donald Trump, uh, and that looks to the left as uh, potentially a, a tyrannical system. What the center does, what the establishment does, is it pits these different conceptualizations of democracy against each other as a way of disciplining the left and the right. So the left will be told that if the right wins, if the Republicans win, then the right will win. And if the right wins, then the right will impose fascism on the country. So the left has to vote for the center so that the right doesn't win. In point of fact, the Republican nominee is usually also a centrist and isn't even right-wing. And insofar as the Republican nominee is right-wing, the Republican nominee is not actually committed uh, or, or capable of creating a fascist state. Conversely, it goes the other way too. The right will be told, you've got to vote for the center because otherwise the left will win. And if the left wins, it will institute communism, right? Generally, the Democratic nominee isn't even part of the left. Uh, even if the Democratic nominee were conceived as part of the left, they would have no interest or capability, even if there is interest, in installing a communist government. The function of this is to get people to vote for centrist candidates when they otherwise would not feel in any way motivated to vote for them, because the centrist candidates are not actually capable of giving them anything that would improve their lives. So since they no longer believe in a hope narrative, they have to be made to vote on the basis of fear. And at this point in our political system, the number of fringe voters, people who might vote for one party or not at all, but are not going to vote for the other party, is much larger than the number of swing voters who will switch which party they vote for based on strength of argument. So it's no longer strategic. It no longer makes sense if you're a political strategist to try to convince someone to flip parties. It is now about activating the fringe voter who otherwise won't vote. And the way you activate the fringe voter it used to be that you'd promise crazy things to the fringe voter that you had no intention of delivering upon just to get the fringe voter to show up. Now the fringe voter is wise to that. So you tell the fringe voter, if you don't show up, the other side will get their crazy things. In point of fact, nobody will get anything. And the center will just keep rolling on. And part of the function of my book is to try to bring people out of this fear space, uh, not because I think that there's a hope space that makes sense at this particular juncture, but because I think if we get out of this fear space and look at this system as something that's totally defective, 
and not at all capable of delivering anything, then that invites us to get more profoundly critical in a more constructive way than we have been to this point. Uh, so speaking of uh, left, right, and center, um, yeah, first of all, I, I do agree that, you know, w- with all this kind of crazy stuff that is supposed to happen, uh, whether it's like the left is supposed to take your children or the right is supposed to set up concentration camps, um, it is true that nothing crazy actually happens, right? I, I think if anything, that's the craziest part of all. I'm just kind of routinely shocked at this kind of like long-term you know, sickly, anemic kind of equilibrium. Like I've always been shocked at the fact that we don't have like, you know, consistent rebellions like in black neighborhoods again and again. The closest you get to is like an occasional riot uh, when, um, you know, police brutality reaches a boiling point. But there's no, you know, there's no riots going on and on, you know, Native American reservations. Don't they, don't they have a moral right to actually lead some sort of insurrection? It seems as if you could make that case uh, fairly easily. Um, And it's like this like long-term anemic sort of equilibrium. But uh, I guess you're defining left, right, and center uh, specifically, uh, you know, both for the sake of argument and just kind of like in practical terms, like the way that we, you know, tend to understand it in America. But in a more kind of absolute sense, uh, like what do you think about uh, the notions themselves? Because it seems to me that left, right, and center, uh, they're becoming less useful, right, in terms of like drawing distinctions. Uh, I, I have a lot of beliefs. I'm positive that, you know, people on the so-called left would associate with uh, some kind of right-wing lunary. For instance, I, you know, I've often made the argument that when it comes to men and women in the United States, uh, men probably day-to-day lives are more difficult. This is especially true if you break things down ethnically. A black male, right, has one of the, you know, worst existences in America, right, compared to anybody. Granted, a black woman might, you know, go through uh, her own problems, but a black male is the one being shot, is the one being murdered by cops, is the one that is nonstop being harassed, right, is the one that ends up in prison. Um, So, uh, but that, to me, it's not a right-wing belief. I mean, I'm just sort of identifying what I view as a disequilibrium and an inequality uh, that's been kind of like slowly uh, engineered. Um, in the same way, I might have, you know, beliefs about uh, human nature that people might view to be regressive. But I personally, you know, as a left winger, you know, very far on the left, uh, I see no conflict between an acceptance of human nature, even one that is, you know, uh, in many respects, kind of hardwired. Some things can't really be changed uh, easily. Uh, that's not scary to me. I could easily create a left-wing project based on an understanding of human nature. Uh, somebody that did a couple of shows with Arnold Schroeder is a radical environmental activism. He has a, a podcast, Fight Like an Animal, where he constantly talks about studies, right? But he's clearly a left-winger that's been, you know, on that side for a long time. So there's that element to it. There's also the fact that like when you look at traditional notions of what it means to be conservative or liberal, those also have kind of shifted. Like it still is amazing to me that we have such a thing in America as a conservative that does not believe in climate change does not believe in finite resources, right? If you're a conservative, like if you like think back, you know, like tens of thousands of years back to, you know, the environment of like ancestral development. The only reason why we have like liberal versus conservative inclinations is, you know, uh, that's kind of the best way to adapt to, you know, whatever system that you're in. If you're too conservative, you're not going to go out and eat a piece of fruit like you should. You're not going to sort of explore and see what you're capable of. You're not going to come down essentially from the trees. 
Uh, if you're too liberal, right, maybe, you know, you you decide you're going to be the first one to jump down and you're going to run through a field and you get killed by a wild animal, right? Um, but uh, if you're a conservative, right, like you should have a notion of, you know, I have to be careful about the world, right? The world is finite. And isn't it crazy? We have all this pollution, we have all these problems going on. There is something, you know, there's something twisted about a conservative that doesn't accept that, right? It's not conservatism anymore. It's it's total, you know, it's radical right-wingism. And I think, you know, in an absolute sense, like if you were to use the conventional terminology, you know, America is a country that is uh, just generally center-right in the sense that we have a center-right party and we have a radical right-wing party. And the center-right party uh, goes along with the radical right-wing party, which routinely, of course, just sets the agenda. Like, I remember uh, arguing with uh, people that were thinking of voting for Trump. They're like, you know, if Biden gets into office, you know, he's going to go so soft in China. And I'm like, no, we already established a foreign policy under the radical right-wing administration. Biden's going to go along with it. There's there's no turning back. That's just how it works. And if you just if you just like follow how this happens, you know, administration to administration, that's just how it tends to fall out. Um, so like, what, what do you think about these categories? Uh, really, if you're going to like look, look outside of maybe the lens of your book, uh, uh, do, do you think they're useful? Do you think like there has been some sort of shift where they don't even correspond to like baseline biological categories that would make it more familiar? Yeah, in the book, uh, to, to be clear for the listener, I use left to refer to the movement around Bernie Sanders, right to the movement around Donald Trump and the center to refer to everything from Bush to Biden the okay. establishment uh, as if it's existed really since the 90s. Yes, I, you are, of course, quite right to point out that these terms don't make nearly as much sense as they used to make. You know, once upon a time, you might have said, well, the, the left is the working class oriented movement and the right is the oligarch oriented movement. Uh, that doesn't really make sense insofar as at this point, the left is, I think, in class terms, much more associated with the fallen professionals than it is with the uh, traditional working class. The right also is, is very much pitching itself at small employers, for instance, uh, and not necessarily at, uh, at least not so straightforwardly at uh, oligarchs in the way that it frames what it's doing. So you can find many occasions where the Democrats will have a position that's more favorable to the position of large numbers of oligarchs. Um, through uh, talking about the professionals and their interests. And you'll also find cases where the right uh, gets at that by talking about the small employers and their interests. In point of fact, I think at this point, the Republican and Democratic parties, insofar as there's any difference between them, it's in which oligarchs and corporations their views ultimately serve. So the Democrats tend to be on the side of big tech and big finance and therefore on the side of the industries which dominate in large cities and on the coasts. And the Republicans are at this point more focused on industries that are tied down uh, in the United States that are located in the middle of the country that are maybe a little bit less mobile. So that allows for more discussion in the Republican party of things like tariffs and uh, attacks on the trade policy. But at the same time, there's still a very strong free market current within the Republican Party. And we shouldn't overstate the degree to which the Republican Party is Trumpist in the substantive sense 
of what kinds of policies it argues for. Indeed, in the 2016 election, I remember in the debates, you know, Trump comes out with, we need to raise the tariffs and do a trade war. And they go around to all the other candidates, uh, all these Tea Party candidates who are theoretically of the right and anti-establishment and anti-centrist, you know, Rubio and Cruz. And what do they say? They say, oh, you have to cut taxes because if you raise the tariffs, that just passes the cost on to the consumer. Uh, really, if we want to get jobs investment here, we have to cut taxes. Uh, for me, what ultimately makes someone like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio a figure of the center rather than the right is that Cruz and Rubio are just committed to following the imperatives of this system. And the question between you know, people in the center left and the center right is, is how fast to follow the imperatives, how hard to go in following the imperatives. But in both cases, the consensus in the Democratic Party establishment and the Republican Party establishment is that these incentives have to be followed. They can't be challenged. You can't change the system in some way to overturn them. So what I tend to identify the right with at this point is an impulse to deal with the system unilaterally by cutting trade or by cutting the country off from other countries. Uh, but that's not an exclusively right-wing view. You can find, say, uh, especially in Europe, uh, Lexit figures, people who uh, are of the left and want to get out of the European Union, who think that ultimately it's not going to be possible to do a multilateral strategy, and so who instead are interested in trying to do some form of socialism in one country. So it's not an exclusively right-wing position, but I think at this point, you know, people that I would classify as on the right are uh, people who want to fundamentally change the trading relationship. If we were talking about political theory and the entire history of political thought, the right has had so many different currents in it over time. You've got people like Edmund Burke, who is associated with just making change, but only when you need to and slowly and always for the purposes of advancing the values for which the system was originally constructed. You have uh, people like Hannah Arendt, who uh, despises uh, labor and work and thinks that life is about action and therefore has a politics which is really only for those who are free to some degree from labor and work. You have uh, Catholic integralists who want to bring back the centrality of, of religion or the church in politics. Uh, there are lots of, and then you've got free marketeers like Hayek. You know, those are probably four different figures, say Burke, Arendt, uh, Thomas Aquinas, and Hayek that you could in some way associate with you know, different currents in the right uh, today. And they don't agree with each other about all kinds of things, but you might call all of those figures right-wing. Conversely, in the left, you've got Marxists, you've got non-Marxist socialists, you've got Keynesian social liberals, you've got many, many different currents of people that don't really agree about all sorts of different things, but are nominally on the left. Uh, at this point, the left is theoretically committed, I think, to trying to change the system through a multilateral approach that's more internationalist in nature. The difficulty is, is how do you actually do that? The obstacles uh, to both are sizable. In the case of the right, if you actually do cut all the trade links, you'll produce a massive inflationary spike. In the case of the left, if you try to negotiate, you're likely to find that your negotiation fails, that other states are not interested or willing to work with you, that you can't find terms that others are willing to follow, that the cost of changing the system is too high for other people to be interested in cooperating. It's one thing to have a Bretton Woods conference when you're coming out of a war and there's been disruption. It's another thing to try to have a second one now at a time when there's already so much money moving around and, and so much going on. 
So I tend to use left and right like that in the book. But of course, in point of fact, these traditions are uh, as divided against themselves as they are against each other. And there are many different interesting incidences of overlap. You can find, say, Catholics who have broadly socialist positions on the economy. You can find uh, market socialists who are otherwise you know, pretty committed to what they view as the advantages of market systems. You know, so you can you can find there's so many different ways of combining these things together. And at different points in the history of political thought, there have been so many different antagonisms in politics that left and right, and right are really, I think, best conceived of at this point as evolving terms. If you'd asked me five years ago, I would have said that the right is interested in responsibilizing individuals, and the left is interested in structures or systems. Uh, that clearly doesn't describe what's going on on the ground now. But that might have been at one point in time when I was uh, very happy to frame myself as of the left the way I preferred to divvy it up. And so there's this question of you know, most of the time when we make a division between what's the left and what's the right, we're making a normative argument based on trying to advance our kind of politics. And so we want to say my kind of politics is either left or right. And then it means this. And that's my way of explaining my politics to you and trying to get you to join in on it. But really what characterizes the history of political thought is that these terms are constantly evolving, their meanings are constantly changing, and therefore they're constantly contested. And the same goes for democracy. Its meaning is constantly contested. And so we can try to control these definitions. But one of the themes of my book is that it's very difficult if you don't have money and you don't have power to control what words mean. And when you try to control what words mean, when you don't have money and you don't have power, you tend to lose. So when you have a strategy for change that's based on winning the discussion, it's often very difficult to do that in a situation where you don't have wealth and power if you have no way of building that up over time through constructing organizations. And the usual way of doing it uh, on the left was to construct labor movements that were embedded in the working class that gave workers uh, a way of getting information and communicating with each other and doing politics together. In the absence of those kinds of things, if you just have professionals who are trying to lead a discussion that they think will go somewhere positive, those professionals will tend to, to, to fail. Their ideas and concepts will tend to be turned to establishment purposes. Uh, or they will get kicked out of the system at some stage for being insufficiently amenable to being turned to those purposes. So given the way that you define uh, progressives, uh, you have an interesting part in the book that I've I've often thought about, um, that progressives, they are on the one hand, very kind of like resistant to perhaps the markets and you know all the kind of niches that markets would entail. But at the same time, they're also very uh, amenable to markets, right? They derive a lot of benefits from that. That that presents a contradiction. Can you uh, explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So there are some Marxists who are critical of the market. There are also some religious people who are critical of the market, some conservatives who are critical of the market. Plato and Aristotle were critical of the market. Aristotle said that if you've been in the market in the last 10 years, you have no business holding public office. You shouldn't even go there. And when he says been in the market, he means literally go into the Agora and uh, visit the shops. Anyone who's visited the shops, he thinks, shouldn't be in office uh, if they've gone in the last 10 years. So there's lots of different oppositions or critiques to the market that come from both Marxists and certain strands of conservative or right-wing thought. Then you've got liberals. And liberals, and this includes both uh, free market right-wing types like a Hayek, 
and then also market socialists, uh, they tend to have a more positive attitude to markets. Uh, one of the ways in which you can often get at this is by talking about something other than markets, by talking about consumption and what the attitude to consumption is. So you'll find some theorists who think that what we desire is an important part of who we are and that our identity has a lot to do with what it is that we desire and with getting what we want. So if you think that what we desire is important to who we are, markets are ways of democratically throwing together all of the desires that people have and spitting out something which is in a sense neutral, right? Insofar as everybody's desires are expressed as demand and the supply is just responsive to the demand. Now, of course, there is an inequality insofar as some people have more money, so their capacity to influence what the demand is, is greater than others. When you have economic inequality, your influence within the market is going to be larger if you have more money with which to buy. But money itself is, is neutral in the market. So the amount of money you have is the number of votes you have in terms of what's produced. And if you think that really you know, all we have are desires for different goods and services, that's really what we are at our core. We want things. Then there's a question about how to make markets fair. There's a question about how to ensure everybody has an equal opportunity in the market. There's a question about making sure everybody's desires get heard in the market. And that introduces some distributive questions. And so, for instance, you'll find even in Hayek an opposition to monopolies insofar as monopolies overconcentrate market power in the hands of a particular firm or particular oligarch. But on the other side, there are critiques of this whole view of who and what we are, which says uh, we're not just our desires, that there are other values apart from the things that we desire that compete with what we desire, and that ultimately an important part of being free is uh, ruling ourselves and subordinating our desires, which tend to be things that come out of the body, to these higher values. Right? And you'll find both left-wing and right-wing thinkers espousing this kind of view. You can find it in Marxists, you can find it in Mahatma Gandhi, and you can find it, of course, in various kinds of Christian thinkers. Now, if you have this kind of view, the market, because the market doesn't care about values apart from what's in demand, uh, the market is necessarily hostile to these further sets of values. And a lot of you know, Frankfurt School era Marxists like you know, Theodore Adorno really were critical of the market on this basis, this basis that the market just doesn't care at all about human values and is purely instrumental because everyone who participates in the market is trying to get money so that they can buy stuff that they want. At no point in the market do these other values really come into it to the point where there's a collapse of belief in these other further values. There's a sense that these other further values aren't useful. They don't make money. They don't generate revenue. Uh, if they were useful, then wouldn't people demand them on the market? And wouldn't they be competitive in a market environment? The fact that they're not competitive in the market environment seems to suggest to someone who is a defender of desire and a defender of the market that uh, these further values are just something that's been imposed by states or by authority figures and aren't actually things that really matter to people. Uh, and this is, I think, a, a big polarizing conflict that mixes up where you would ordinarily find a lot of people on the left-right spectrum. But I think we can say today that there's a cultural antagonism between a set of people who 
think that consumption is a part of affirming who we are as human beings and think that consumption is corroding or eroding the things that really matter about being human. Uh, and that very often the progressive liberals find themselves on uh, a side of this that is not very recognizably Marxist. And conversely, some religious social conservatives will find them on a side of this where they will find that there is a certain amount of common ground with Marxists. But because of the way that the cultural discussion is polarized, uh, that these, uh, these different relationships rarely are visible to us. And most of the time, if you are on the left, you are expected to affirm desire. And if you are on the right, you are expected to critique it. And so libertarians find themselves uncomfortable with the social conservatives insofar as the religious conservatives don't share their impulse uh, to affirm desire. And conversely, uh, on the left, you'll find that people who think that the state is important or have a more paternalist attitude find themselves in an uneasy alliance with more libertarian socialists or anarchists who are fundamentally suspicious of those other values and view them as potentially oppressive. A lot of it comes back to, you know, what do you think really exists in politics? Do you think that at our core, we are individuals that desire things or is what exists something else? Do we have you know, peoples? Do we have states? Do we have uh, you know, abstract values like the good or God that we all participate in or emanate from? These basic questions about what exists, I think, are in many ways more fundamental than the left-right question and often map onto the left-right question in different ways. Uh, speaking of uh, uh, desire and, and critiquing of desire, um, yeah, it's another one of those things where uh, it's it's not so, like it, it doesn't have to be so obviously uh, liberal, conservative, right, left or right in the sense that, I mean, like for instance, uh, when most of my life I was, I was morbidly obese. It was only in my early twenties that I lost something like a hundred pounds. And I mean, I remember at the time, like I was like a, a full blown, like Marxist back then. And, uh, I like, I couldn't sit for more than like five, 10 minutes without like severe back pain. I was like, but look, if you want to, you know, if you want to sit down and you want to write and you want to actually do something worthwhile, right sorry, you're going to have to stop eating food. Like there's no way around it. You're not going to out jog your way out of like, you know, uh, being morbidly obese. Like you're going to have to like literally stop eating food. Right. And still, I mean, to this day, like um, if I see like a plate of cookies, uh, I will uh, almost never even have one. But I always have the thought, damn, wouldn't it be nice if I just could have this entire plate right now? That thought has never, you know, like left my mind. Just the desire for it has, you know, uh, actually gone away, like in a practical sense. Um, and but, you know, th th that has to do with like living to your kind of like potential, right? I mean, there's plenty of places where as a left winger, you want to, you know, you want to curtail indulgence, especially when you view how oligarchs live. It's just, it, you see it, you, you have to see it, right? As a totally pointless, self-indulgent kind of existence. And you look at that and you say, this is what I should avoid. This is what I don't want to do, right? Even if I become, you know, one of these like professional types, I have to always be aware of that. So, um, I mean, that's an interesting factor. Another thing I think like in, in practical terms, how like progressives are amenable to markets is uh, maybe this would have been the case prior to like this hyper competition that we're in now, 
But even if you look at like the the media, the media ecosystems, right? You know, people that are ostensibly on the left, like Jimmy Dore, who for a long time have been saying stuff like, oh, look, you know, you have to avoid voting for Democrats or Republicans. He still can't help but like, all right, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson is pretty big. I'm going to have to play nice with him, right? I'm going to have to appear on his show. Uh, I'm going to have to sort of, you know, placate him because of his audience. Uh, if I want to, you know, like, let's say best case scenario, Jimmy Dore is trying to like, you know, create bridges between his, you know, uh, uh, Carlson's audience and his, right? Like to to bring like left-wingers over. Still, like there's going to be this kind of like almost kiss-assy kind of dynamic going on. And it seems as if everybody has like, a niche that they're forced into, right? Everybody has to like fulfill some sort of like function. If like all, if all the big guns and a certain kind of political persuasion are, you know, this person, that person, that person, and they believe X, Y, and Z, you're going to have to sort of, you know, adapt yourself to that. And you're going to have to like not be as critical about it, or you're going to have to have like very creative sort of thought process that could combine in some sort of like really like weird synthetic, you know, Frankenstein fashion, you know, one ideology with another. Um, on the other extreme end, you have like, you know, total like, you know, freak shows like that guy, what is it, Jackson Hinkle, some guy like that who calls himself uh, a, a Marxist uh, Trumpist. Um, you know, like totally, you know, like it's stuff that like ceases to make any kind of sense. And yet, you know, everybody has like a certain kind of role to play, right? They have to be forced into these like little holes. And, you know, it seems like in some ways, uh, there's no way out. So like later on in your book, when you start critiquing the pot, like, well, what if this book is wrong, right? And we have like some sort of, you know, a uh, class trader that, that joins our cause. Um, you know, I, I think like there's something about, you know, uh, both the way that fame works today and media media works today and these niches work today, that might be even kind of like harder going forward. I don't know if you have any like broad thoughts about that. Yeah, I think it's very difficult. In that chapter, what if this book is wrong? I really try to deal with, uh, I imagine a reader who thinks that my outlook is just too negative and I'm just too, too negative about things. And I try to give that reader my you know my best effort to imagine what are some things that might work or might move in a positive direction but throughout that chapter i'm constantly undercutting all of my own ideas as soon as i throw something out there i start giving myself a hard time about it and going well would that actually work how would we actually get out of this the structural straitjacket that we seem to be in and what i keep coming back to is that it's very very difficult to produce large-scale change without the kinds of major disruptions that are usually only brought about by really big exogenous shocks. And the one that I eventually come to in that chapter is the possibility of a big war with China that would disrupt Pacific trade and fundamentally change the situation. And it's it, that's the kind of thing where you can't possibly argue for something like that. Nobody can argue for fighting a world war because of the horrible, awful things that happen to people when that kind of stuff gets underway. But uh, at the same time, I do think we need to recognize that a lot of the wishful thinking people are engaged in, where they imagine, ah, you know, we could just talk about things a little different, or I could just persuade somebody to come around, and then we could get together and, and start getting something going. A lot of this stuff runs into a lot of, of obstacles, and a lot of it comes back to the fact that the money the available money for building organizations is often tied to specific culture war stances, specific stances on these questions about desire and which desires are valid and which ones aren't and which identities are valid and which ones aren't. 
uh, that prevent broad movements from being built that include both fallen professionals and traditional non-college educated workers. That ultimately, when you try to get these groups together, they get split on cultural lines. And then what usually happens is that the fallen professionals drive the traditional workers out of the organization. They not only marginalize them in decision-making, but they create, make the environment so unpleasant for traditional workers that the traditional workers just quit and go home and exit. So I think that uh, it's very, very difficult to imagine a non-catastrophe-involving scenario. Uh, one of the things I talk about is, is this lack of belief in revolution that people have. There's a, a lack of willingness on the part of ordinary people in the United States to be killed for their beliefs, in part because there's so little confidence that if anybody managed to win, that their beliefs would produce anything markedly better than what we have. The sense that market competition is inevitable and cannot be escaped is so powerful that people think, well, even if there was a revolution and I won, what would then happen? Where would, where would we really go? And a lot of post-revolutionary thinking leads into this, this idea that even if you do the revolution, eventually the revolutionary generation will be exhausted, everybody will kill each other, and you'll get right back where you were in the beginning. Maybe you'll even be somewhere worse because you will have destroyed a lot of things that people valued in the beginning. Uh, and those things won't be around now to give people any comfort about the situation that they'll be in. So I think that we have to get really serious about just how big the obstacles are and I think, as you say, it is much more difficult now to imagine labor unions that have enough influence to beat the system. Uh, when you know, in the 70s, when you had steel mills and mines with large numbers of human workers, their influence was not sufficient. And it's also very difficult to imagine particular rich people defecting and making a big difference by defecting, because at this point, uh, there's... The, the market forces that rich people themselves deal with uh, constrain their behavior to significant degrees, especially if they run, say, publicly traded corporations where shareholder value is uh, pivotal. So we are roughly at the two-hour mark, which is when YouTube starts uh, uh, punishing me for very uh, rich, in-depth content. So maybe let's bring the rest of the discussion over to the uh, patron show. That is patreon.com slash automachination. There's a few things I want to uh, discuss, uh, both uh, personal and, and uh, not. So like, uh, for example, um, uh, in your book, I learned that 2008 was a personal turning point for you. You were 16 at the time, but that's when you started reading political theory like actually in depth uh interestingly enough for me my turning point was 2003 uh, i was also 16 and that's when i started reading in depth not necessarily political theory but just kind of you know widely in general and um uh, I, I want to talk about not only that personal side of things but also specifically like whether we see any um positive developments in like the response that uh government had to 2008 versus 2020 you know uh, is this a harbinger of anything so we could talk about that um uh, i want to talk about uh aristotle's concept of the vulgar craftsman this idea that uh if you even if you want to do good things you get kind of like funneled into 
sacrificing your principles and your craft for the sake of, um, you know, financial gain or fame or whatever. I mean, I sort of experienced this myself. I mean, even like I said earlier, like, you know, YouTube algorithm does punish these discussions if they're over two hours, but I have shows that are run five, six hours long, right? And uh, I, I want to get it out because I think it's valuable. I also don't neatly fall. Like I, I easily make enemies with everybody. I'm not easily one to make friends and that's punishing. And yet, you know, I don't want to escape that. When I walk around and do my walking and talking videos, those are nice and I say interesting things, but my real interest is like sitting down and writing. So how do I sort of, you know, you know, not uh, stifle my own potential uh, versus how do I actually, you know, these ideas, how do I actually get them noticed, right? Because I can't just do only what I want to do. Uh, I want to talk about like, uh, like concepts like innate conservatism, uh, specifically through the lens of like figures like Kwame Brown. So actually, uh, Benjamin, you, you uh, it was your essay on Kwame Brown a couple of years ago, that first even like made me like realize the name, uh, I, I tried to like avoid seeing what's going on in the internet. So um, I would have never learned about that if it wasn't for your essay. And since that time, I've been kind of like on and off watching his content. And, and I think it's pretty fascinating, based on the fact that he's not a media creation, despite the fact that he's conservative. It's a very different kind of conservatism from somebody like you know, a Ben Shapiro or whatnot. And uh, I, I I think it's interesting to explore that a little bit. Um, uh, what else is there? There's, I mean, there, there's also kind of more substantive stuff in the second part of your book, right? What are the options available to us? So what is this idea of a dream-eating democracy? What are the kinds of, you know, pivot points uh, down the road that might lead to any kind of change you know are we just you know waiting for this kind of climate catastrophe because it is kind of fascinating how now when you read studies they're sort of taking you know something like four degrees celsius of warming for granted i was like all right now we're kind of making peace with that which is pretty scary if you actually realize what four degrees of warming entails for things like desertification and whatnot um and i'm sure there's going to be a bunch of other topics too so guys thank you for staying uh with us for this entirety of two hours and for the patrons we will see you soon and ben if you want to say anything to close us close us out go ahead well thank you guys so much for listening and thanks for having me it's been a blast and i'm looking forward to doing some more thank you